Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the NSAC Coffee Hour interview series. In this interview series, we hope to learn from a broad range of people closely associated with STEM PhD life. Professors, scientists, alumni, staff, administrators, and others. The goal is to get to know the fascinating journeys, stories, and experiences that got these people where they are today. In this week's interview, we had the privilege of interviewing Justin Wirth. Justin is currently a research engineer at Purdue's Burke Nanotechnology Center. In this interview, we explored how he went from being a Purdue undergrad to a Purdue PhD student and how he decided that the path of research engineer was for him. This discussion particularly illuminated that there are other paths in academia beyond just professorship. So without further delay, here's the interview. Justin, thank you so much uh, for agreeing to this interview and also on behalf of everyone from NSAC and also from Burke, it's not said enough, but thank you so much for all of your efforts um, at improving the sort of tools, the communication between staff and students, and just generally being an all-around great person. Now, oh, I don't, oh, yeah, you're very welcome, we, got, we, we need a lead with this, because it's not said <laughs> enough, and uh, whatever they pay you, it's not enough. So uh, no, yeah, thank you very much for the kind words. Happy, happy to be here and talking to you. I'm so happy to, to be able to interview you today. So to get started, we're going to ask the most hard-hitting questions first. So the first one is, what is your favorite color? Uh, um, depending on the day, probably either green or blue. But it's, you know, it's funny. So I have a three-year-old son, so it doesn't really matter because he always gets to pick first and then my wife. So I'm usually left with the yellows or the oranges. So you kind of got to deal with uh, what you can get. Okay, but, so your your son is how old is your son now? He's three. He'll, he'll be four in February. Okay, so he has uh, but, a very strong opinion. Yes. On, on the color. Oh, in yes. February. Okay, so Picking, that's coming up yeah, soon. Pieces, those kinds of things. So yeah, and everybody has to be a different color, right? So that's yeah, usually. But yeah, I, I would prefer uh, the cooler colors, green, blues, those sorts of things. Okay. Okay. So now now that we've gotten the most hard hitting part of the interview out of the way, we can we can proceed. So. Uh, I see that uh, it looks like just glancing over your resume that you're like a, a full-blooded Purdue Boilermaker from beginning to kind of end, from BSc, PhD, now you're employed at Purdue. Um, so before we get to, to Purdue, I want to ask you like kind of where are you from originally uh, and that kind of thing. Yeah, so originally from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. So that's right on south down by the Indiana border uh, and grew up in southern Indiana. So right across the river from there, but still in kind of the Louisville metro area. Mm -hmm. um, and really until I came to Purdue. So uh, that's yeah. So definitely is Indiana is a different, very different part of Indiana, though, because it's much hillier and kind of greener, not just kind of the the flat kind of gray that you get up in the northern half of the state. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, def definitely still Indiana. It is a, definitely a small world because one summer I actually worked in Louisville uh, and stayed there for the summer. So yeah, it's it's crazy how everyone's kind of lives overlap. Maybe we were even there at the, well, I guess you were at Purdue by then, but maybe we were in the same city at the same time all those years ago. Yeah, no, it, it is funny how that works. Yeah, and it is, you know, especially in the Midwest, there's not a ton of kind of huge hubs, right? I mean, you've kind of got Chicago, Indianapolis, St. Louis, St. Louis, uh, yeah. Columbus State. But yeah, there's so, yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that. That's neat. So if, if somebody goes to visit Louisville, 
what is the most important thing that they must do if they're in Louisville? Otherwise, they've completely missed the experience and the essence. Oh, so Louisville, yeah, Louisville's neat. And it's funny because when if somebody internationally asks me where I'm from, I say Louisville, Kentucky, because it's where uh, you got the Louisville Slugger bats. Uh, right. There is a huge bat museum bat factory. Uh, mm -hmm. Is also right. Kentucky is home of you know bourbon, so the Bourbon Trail, and so that's a super fun thing that you can go to all these distilleries that have been there for 300 years and uh, hear about kind of their history. Uh, and then you got the Kentucky Derby as well, which is kind of the once a year thing that locally nobody goes to, but is a big deal and kind of televised. So <laughs> yeah, it's there's it's and it's a lot more. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I you know when you know I mean. I love Indiana and West Lafayette and Indianapolis are great, but like with Indianapolis, if I talk to that, everybody knows the Pacers and yeah. probably the Colts, but outside of that in the Indy 500, that's a high, you got really got to grasp at straws for non-sports things. So right. easier to talk to those uh, from, from Louisville. Okay, but so th this is, uh, these are kind of what it's uh, renowned for. So, but is there anything like, like that the, if you're a hard local, in Louisville that you would recommend doing or seeing? Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's hard because I've been up here since I was 18. Right. So I don't, I don't know that I can really kind of profess to the, the local experience without uh, ruffling feathers or something. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I, I would say that, uh, I don't know. I, I really like the, Louisville has this wonderful uh, waterfront park along the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just kind of this huge green expanse and now have these walkable bridges across where you can go to the Indiana side. Um, mm -hmm. They have some really nice restaurants on both. You have a steamboat, uh, the Bell Louisville along there. So that's, I would say that's kind of the nicest if you're like passing through and want to kind of do something nice, but if it's just a stopover or kind of like that, that's that's kind of my favorite thing. Okay, okay. So now we, we have the kind of the inside <laughs> scoop on Louisville. There's, there's also a fantastic makerspace there, actually. That oh, really? Like, okay. If you're into engineering, it's super fun to visit. Uh, right, and they that. do. And Louisville's interesting because they do also have uh, one of the uh, NNCI, so the National Nanotechnology Coordinated Infrastructure. One of those sites is in Louisville, um, and oh, so they have a they have a clean room there. Um, that's yeah, it's kind of one of those that is I wouldn't say open to the public, but that's kind of the purpose is that they kind of take um, you know fab jobs nationally, and if you mm. have like a small company or something, can go in there. Oh, very um, interesting. So that's, yeah, it's at University of Louisville, um, but yeah, that's that's a neat. Uh, also, in, in kind of the nano fab world, is a neat thing to stop by if you're ever interested. Okay, so yeah, I guess we can. I guess that that would be an interesting tour to do of the country. Just visit all the <laughs> nano fabs. Yes, yeah, which you could because they're all in cities, right? So you could you could definitely kind of go uh, city hopping and try to try to see all the fabs. It's tough because some are you know you can just kind of see them like Burke. Some of them are kind of nestled away, and you'd have to get special access. But right, yeah, no, that's that's a neat idea. That would be very interesting actually to do. So you so you're growing up in Louisville, and like I guess when when did you first become aware? That you wanted to do something related to engineering, right? Was there a moment, like a class or a teacher or something, that really motivated you to go into engineering as compared to painting? Uh, yes, I do. I do want to say so. I grew up in Georgetown, Indiana, so it's across this Louisville metro. Nobody knows where Georgetown is, but I can't claim myself to be have grown up in in the city, right? But that's fair. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I would say I think for me, I I, I always really liked. Um, 
I would say some of the more intuitive sciences, so kind of like the chemistry, physics. Um, mm -hmm. I always found those very interesting, um, and just kind of I, I think kind of the the intuitive analytical part of that. Okay, um, that was always I think much more interesting. You know, kind of mathematics have always been fine at, but it's not. Uh, I tend to skip steps. So that's always like the, you know, yeah, it's like I, I can do triple integrals and things, but it's it's painful. Like I don't I don't, don't want to do that. I always miss the negative sign. Right. So, yeah, but I, I would definitely say that it's more of, uh, yeah, I think just just those kinds of um, subjects were kind of I knew that I really liked those kinds of problems, and mm -hmm. so I wanted to kind of find something that was uh, involving those. Oh, that's actually very interesting because, yeah, like, like, you know, we'll get to your career, like career later um, as to like what you did your PhD in. But, you know, that actually brings an interesting question. If you say like physics and, and chemistry and the intuitive sciences, but then you came here and you did electrical engineering. So how did you how did you go from like, because that's the thing in high school, right? Unless your school is rich, we usually don't have like dedicated like electrical programs or robotics or things. So how did you make the decision to go into electrical instead of chemistry or physics or one of the other departments? Yeah, so that was I think when I got here. Um, yeah, I mean, I knew I was kind of uh, I was into computers. And so, mm -hmm. at, you know, that that was kind of a draw into double E, but, I, you know, I was also looking at kind of uh, like physics materials, those kinds of things. And so mm -hmm. kind of did the thing my freshman year where took um, kind of like kind of one credit hour survey courses. And so okay. kind of did some of that in materials engineering um, as well as mm -hmm. did kind of a little bit of physics and kind of very quickly kind of realized, okay, maybe don't like these as much, kind of feel more at home in this kind of a thing. Okay. Um, and so that's that's kind of where doubly kind of felt like the best fit at that stage. And so that kind of use that to kind of feel out how to specialize. Okay. And so uh, this is this leads to a sort of humorous question. So ECE clearly or electrical was clearly the one that won out in the end. But which department did you take a survey course and think to yourself, I absolutely never want to do anything like this ever again? Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't think I don't think there was anything where I was like, I couldn't do this. Like I, it was, I, I think that, you know, all, within engineering, I think everything kind of has its more kind of typical problems and yeah. just kind of a feel. So I don't think there was anything where I was just like, this is disgusting and I can't put up with this or something like that. I think it was more like, ah, this doesn't really feel like a great fit. Like I'm not, okay, uh, not really. So like ABE, like I'm not a plant guy. I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a lot from there. That's not my thing. So that's, that's kind of one of those. Yeah, that's probably not where I want to end up. That's not a good. Right, right. Uh, doesn't really well, you, resonate. Did you, did you take a survey course in ABE? No, not an ABE. No, I did one in uh, materials engineering actually. With, yeah. Uh, it was with uh, Carol, yeah, Professor Carol Handwerker and Alejandro Strachan. And that was incredibly interesting. I mean, that was neat because they talked about. Um, had been involved with uh, after 9-11 with going in with NIST at the Twin Towers and kind of looking at what happened mm -hmm. and piecing those together. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a thing that I uh, definitely came away with a, a very, I think, a healthy respect and a good perspective is kind of what uh, what that constituted. So mm -hmm. yeah, but it was, was more kind of, uh, yeah, I would say, um, you know, that, that kind of mechanical engineering or kind of a different 
kind of set from kind of the more physics double E type with kind of your Maxwell's equations and things. So that's right. Those were the kinds of things that I think was more uh, uh, more interesting or just kind of resonated more with me. That that's it. that's what they they told me uh, whenever I was doing physics. They said, "How can you decide if you should do physics?" So like, if you like the intro mechanics courses, then you should maybe consider like mechanical engineering. But if you like ENM, that's more physics style. So yeah, so I guess there's like a pretty strong breakdown between <laughs> field equations and <laughs> like uh, diffusion <laughs> equations. <laughs> There is, yes. And I mean, and also too, I mean, I, I didn't end up in physics. So I mean, it's, there's a very big difference between doing kind of the really hardcore drill down uh, in terms of the science and the math and what's going on and just kind of staying at the higher level of uh, these are electrons, they do things you don't really need to know, you know. So yeah, yeah you there's, don't, there's definitely you don't difference you know there too. The exact yeah, solution of... Which, well, I mean, unless you're in, you know, doing quantum stuff now, right? So it, it definitely right. does depend on kind of your, uh, your specific area. That's definitely, yeah, nowadays definitely as it gets to quantum optics and things, it's just starting to all merge because it's too, right. it's too, yeah, basically your, your like large scale equations are starting to break down and everything is, you know, you got to do the painful <laughs> version of this. You don't have the convenience right. of continuum equations anymore. So, yes. so you do, you, you start your ECE. Now, within ECE, kind of which branch did you start to gravitate to? Because you've made a decision now, you're an electrical engineer, you're starting to get into the specialization. Like, which uh, branch did you gravitate to most and, and why? So I think, yeah, I mean, I, I did, um, in my ECE 201 class, uh, was taught by Professor Minghao Chi. And so I had, uh, at the time had gone to office hours a couple times and kind of found out about his research um, and doing you know with silicon resonators those kinds of things mm. um, and so I ended up getting involved in a summer surf project uh, actually at Burke so I, I've started at Burke was the summer of 2007 uh, which is very long time ago I mean that's what 13 years now so wow, that's but, that's actually true that's like early on in, because Burke opened in 05, right? So that's within two years. Yeah, and it, I, I don't I don't know that it was really operational till maybe like 06. So it was still kind of very much in the, the kind of the formative stages and. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess I guess you actually overlapped with our one of our previous speakers, right? Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah, no, and it's what it, it is interesting because I, I mean, you know, it's it, it's as far as Burke as a community is kind of tricky because if you just kind of come and hole up in the clean room is different from uh, using the general labs from kind of just being um, maybe just kind of doing computer sim which you maybe do in your office maybe just do at home right so but yeah no I, I think I would have uh, would have overlapped there uh, at some point with me kind of as this baby sophomore uh, undergraduate uh, versus right. yeah the, the researchers but yeah no that's a good point that's uh, yes, it's it's it is interesting how because Burke is relatively young as a as a research institution. So yeah, that's true. There are only a handful of generations of students that have gone through here, and I guess you've seen the inaugural class come through and leave. So I, I guess this is an interesting kind of historical question. How, how would you say the culture of Burke has changed from two thousand seven 
to today? Like, just do you see a difference in people's attitudes toward research or or towards working in Burke? Does, do you see a change in that? I mean, I think yeah, I think there was. I think there's this natural thing when you have something new, right? Like, if you buy a new car, your first inclination is that well, nobody can eat or drink in it, right? Like, I got to make sure that this doesn't. And so, I mean, definitely when the facility opened, there was a lot of concern about, um, you know, I mean, it was much more harping and training on um, just kind of how to use tools, lab protocols, safety rules, those sort of things. Yeah. Um, and definitely, it never felt in kind of a punitive way, but was much more yeah. of a, we need to kind of teach you how to exist in this shared space. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it, that's, you know, I think the whole concept of kind of the shared use facility is tough because you have kind of these parallel knowledge tracks of, you know, one is kind of within the group and then the others with the facility as a whole. Right. Um, and so I, you know, it, it is a thing that as, as I think the facility kind of continued to kind of grow and evolve that, um, I think like, I mean, like most facilities, I think that's kind of changed a little bit and it's it's not, uh, I think now is kind of more up to, um, I think in a way is kind of more up to the groups to kind of do some of that mentoring, but it's it's hard because with, I think a lot of the, the research models now mm -hmm. um, and just kind of the way the, the DARPA model works that it's, you have to get results much quicker than you did. Um, Oh, even you know, in 2007. Oh, interesting. So it's yeah, because it, I mean, in terms of when you have to do check-ins with how's the project going. And okay. so it's there's kind of now there's much more of a drive that we need results every three months, uh, whereas before it was much more maybe like an annual or semi-annual or something like that. Oh, interesting. So it's yeah. So there's it, it's kind of hard because in in a lot of groups you have these very experienced um, users, but they may not really have the time to kind of do the mentoring of their younger students. And that's also something that was also very different um, for me is because when it started, it was always, it was kind of like, uh, you know, like how the Sith, there's always like the master and the apprentice, but like Fab was always, you always had like the guy who knew what they were doing and then someone who was kind of there learning but it was always in pairs. Like it was never, never more, like never less. It was always like, okay, they're for this one from this group. They have these two fab people, and then they might, they might be kind of the same level of experience. Yeah. Um, that's just how it was always done. And now I see a lot more of um, in, instead of being where you have a group where you have, okay, these are the simulation folks, these are the fab folks, these are the measurement folks. Yeah. It's much more that you have kind of. Uh, everybody in the group trying to do some fab and some measurement and those kinds of things. And as as somebody that's that's kind of how I did my PhD and why it took so long. If you kind of notice on my CV, is that it's mm -hmm. it's very long to learn all kind of all, all three of those areas. So it's uh, right. it's good because it's a much more complete overview of what you're doing, and I think really mm -hmm. builds your understanding. Uh, but man, is it painful. So. <laughs> Okay, uh, so yeah, it sounds like we're gonna have a lot of fun because painful, painful experiences are the ones that yield all of the interesting learning. Yes, growth. Yes. Yeah, that's so. Okay, so you you go through and basically you gravitated toward uh, optics, which it sounds like because you were going into materials. I'm guessing it's it's somewhat this mix between this because optics maybe more than a lot of other fields is so dependent on materials because yeah literally you know, if i'm if i will be a little bit like oversimplifying but if you're making circuits right the, the you're not thinking about like what the interconnect lines 
are, are going to be, you know, on your PCB, Correct. right? It's more systems level, whereas in optics, it's like you have to do this material or yeah. it will no. not work. So would you say that you gravitated toward it because of your kind of interest in this more electromagnetic physics sort of thing and materials? Interest? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think especially with, I think, nanophotonics um, is kind of this interesting mix of, um, you know, kind of the the Maxwell's equation side of kind of physics and electrical engineering of mm -hmm. uh, the, um, you know, like you said, the material side, because what you can do is completely dependent on the material properties and especially at the nanoscale, right? That is a right. refractive index breaks down, right? You got to worry about heat transfer and all these kind of weird things. Um, right. But then also just kind of the, uh, you know, just kind of the, the nanoscale integration of then you have to worry about surface roughness, right? What is What does silicon look like when you try to get it down to two nanometers? Is that is that a good thing to do? We have this other interesting glass, but maybe it's terrible on the edges, so we shouldn't use that. So yeah, right. I, I would definitely think that's uh, that's part of why uh, it, it seems so interesting. Yeah, that's we definitely see that a lot um, in Professor Shalayev's like group is that you have to start from you like in order to be really decent in in optics, um, you have to really have a good understanding from fab end first. Um, because it is so tied to your to the actual uh, materials and the fabrication. Um, so so you you do this research with Professor Minghao Chi. How did how did that go? I was fine. It was uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny looking back uh, because I mean, essentially what what the project. I mean, so what I was doing was trying to get the interference lithography set up in the clean room working. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you, you try to, I think with undergrad research, right, you come in kind of like bright eyed and bushy tailed and think you're going to get this, you know, first author nature paper. But I mean, really what it was is that we have this thing and it doesn't work and none of the graduate students have the time to figure it out. So let's let Justin tinker around with it for a couple months. So that's, I mean, right. so basically what, what the, uh, yeah, I mean, what the work was, was basically just doing kind of this optical alignment of this UV laser, these mirrors, and we ended up needing to kind of come up with a uh, an enclosure in the clean room because just, it's funny because the laser and the performance of it are actually somewhat compromised in the clean room because of the laminar airflow is enough to kind of cause these mechanical vibrations. Oh, and so needed to kind of build a uh, very rudimentary uh, in the form of PVC pipe and kind of thick uh, black plastic um, way to kind of shield the airflow so that it didn't uh, didn't do that and you kind of got good results. So that's that's what that ended up being. Um, and I'm I'm sure it's it's funny looking back on it because I'm sure some staff member found that and had to pull it out of the clean room like five years after the project and was like, what on earth were they doing? Kind of a thing. What um, I really what I really want to see is you at Home Depot. By exactly. PVC pipe and tarp, yep. being like, this is for my nano fabrication project. Yes, correct. And yeah, and sitting at home on the couch and being like, I don't know, do I do I want this one? Is like the eight mil better than the fifteen mil? I don't know which of these. Yeah, right. yeah. So, but you know, it's yeah, it's sometimes. I think sometimes expenses, you know, solutions need to be very specific and expensive, and sometimes they don't. So. Sometimes it's that you find the answer at Home Depot. Yes, exactly. I'm always more impressed, actually, by people who find specific solutions out of things that were not meant to do that, actually. I think that's that's the mark of true 
engineering creativity because it's like if you if you throw a million dollars at any problem right and have a custom machine solution you could get high performance but yes. doing it doing it with random parts that's much harder but yes no that's it's always interesting to me to talk to people who have been very experienced in the lab and in fab and those kinds of things because you do run into those kinds of problems and like you said yeah they're very expensive solutions and sometimes there are very cheap, easy solutions that you don't know about unless you've been doing it for 10 years or a decade or one of those people has told you about it. Right. right. Um, and that's if, if you're just starting and you don't have that kind of group knowledge, you don't you don't know. Right. There's not you may spend right. months trying to find a solution and it's it may be just real easy. Well, those but are very those, specific also. So, yeah, those are the most like that. Those are the kinds of engineering projects that are very interesting. It's like whenever you see a solution. And it, it's it looks like a plastic tarp and some plastic, but in reality, it's actually really, really thought out. And there's a huge amount of effort in some cases that goes into these very simple looking things. Yes. Which, yeah, you you look at it and you're like, oh, that's obvious, but coming up with that is not. So right. No, and I think it's I, I mean it's kind of like, I think it's Mark Twain's quote that uh, I'm sorry I didn't uh, write you a short letter. Or I didn't have the time. That it's it's. It takes less time to do this kind of overcomplicated thing where a lot of the time goes is in figuring out where you can simplify and what you can cut. Right. And so it's, it's definitely something that, yeah, I, I do think that is a, those solutions come out of experience and time invested. Right, right. And and just, yeah, a lot, a lot of painful yes. <laughs> experience. The worst papers, right, are the ones where you see some step and you're like, why? Does this involve flipping this thing over at this particular in this weird way? And you know that that's months of somebody just like throwing something in weird ways to try to get it to do something. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing with papers too is that it's if they put it in there, you're lucky, right? They maybe omit oh, yeah. that step. And so you oh. can't, it's not reproducible because you didn't know you had to hold it at a 45 degree angle for While 30 seconds. Blowing on it. And yes. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's, I mean, the uh, one of my it wasn't the focus of my PhD thesis, but uh, one of the kind of projects I did, having learned all this stuff at the end, um, that got into I think it was Nature Communications, oh, but wow. ended up being the fourth author on that just because of the fab. But I mean, what what ended up making it? It was basically that this other group was trying to do a very similar thing. They couldn't get it to work, yeah. and we did only because you have to worry about um, stiction. And basically is that as water evaporates, right, it right. creates this force. And so the only thing that I did different was that when I took it out of, you know, after the final rinse, instead of going right to a drying it, I just put it into IPA and then dried it after that. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's a right, super simple step, but that was the whole, really the crux of why it was hard to do uh, at, at that scale. So it, right. it, yeah, sometimes it is the, the simple things that take a long time to figure out and those experience are really can what give you uh, the really interesting results. Yeah, I, I remember I was trying to clean pieces. I spent a month cleaning silicon pieces and I thought I was losing my mind because I would clean them in every imaginable way, right? Holding the pieces, drying them at angles, dry, like air drying them, water drying them, every combination. And every time I'd put it in dark field, it's just like the starry sky. And it turns out that metal tweezers will always put particulates on your silicon pieces as you move mm. them from beaker to beaker. 
and it's just you know a month of just hours yes <laughs> wasted pieces it's just it's something so simple but yeah right that's how it how it goes so you do your undergrad research and then uh i see that you got this andrew graduate fellowship which for people outside of purdue that is like the top fellowship you can get if i'm not mistaken coming to purdue um, yeah from the university yeah right I think so. so that's uh, quite impressive um so how did you choose purdue right because if you get a fellowship like this from purdue i'm sure you had other uh universities that were interested but you clearly chose to come here was there a particular reason or yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the things were, I mean, one is, I mean, it's close to family. And so that being within the state of mm -hmm. Indiana and trying to look at Nanofab, there's not a lot of places around. Um, and right. so that was one. But I mean, I, th I think also, I mean, was the fact that I, I was very lucky to get, um, I mean, so for my undergraduate, I mean, got my tuition covered because at the time, if you're a National Merit Scholar, they covered that. Oh, wow. Uh, I then got my Andrew, the Andrews Fellowship for my master's work. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it essentially got all of my grad work and then kind of went into an RA ship. So I got all, all of my schooling paid for that way through Purdue. Uh, okay. And so I do, I, mean, I do feel very, I think, very lucky and feel like the state of Indiana has invested in me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's that's part of for me is that I um, in working at Burke and trying to kind of help with the user base kind of feel like it's kind of giving back and hopefully uh, paying on that investment to some degree. Right. That, that was part of it. Um, right. But then it's also, yeah, and, and two was, I think, had uh, at the time was working with both uh, Professor Chi, but then also uh, Professor Andy Weiner, uh, mm -hmm. who I'd taken his optics class with and was kind of very interested there. So kind of had, uh, had you know, been offered that fellowship and then also um, some very kind of interesting things on the research side to look at both kind of the optics side and then also kind of the nanofab side. Okay, so so it was a very nice combination of financial opportunity, family, quality of education, and also that you already had a very nice group of people to 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 work with mm -hmm. um, at Purdue. So everything came together. That's that's really actually very nice because you have the big advantage of having already kind of the understanding of how everything works. Because that right. sometimes that takes time. To, like for example, at Burke, right, getting to know the staff, knowing who to ask, so you you were able to slipstream much faster. So we you we get to your PhD. So what what was like the research project that went the most horribly? <laughs> that 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 you're you're like oh my goodness never again. Um, I don't. Uh, let me think. I mean, I don't. I don't think I ever had. I don't think I had, I had any kind of specific dead ends like that. So we did yeah. have um, what I was started with uh, my PhD work with. Um, yeah, I, th I think this kind of comes back to material properties and things, but that was kind of trying to do on-ship polarization rotation with silicon waveguides. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, spent a very long time doing that and a lot of kind of optical setup and those kinds of things. But I mean, what, what we kind of found out once we got down to it was that it, it, it came down to the surface roughness. That there was this oh. kind of intrinsic, yeah, you get this intrinsic scattering between modes in the waveguide uh, mm -hmm. because of your because of your silicon. And so we were, we were trying to going from silicon nitride, which is much, much bigger, right. uh, smoother edges, um, working at different wavelengths down to silicon. And so kind of saw after we kind of got to that point that like, oh, OK, this isn't really going to 
this kind of four-year project is not going to pan out that way because of this. And that's that's kind of one of those things that, you know, it's research, right? You never know if it's going to work or not. Of course, um, yeah. But, yeah, but I mean, I, I think that at least for me, I mean, my project-wise, I, I kind of started out doing, um, in, in silicon, doing grading couplers. So kind of mm -hmm. doing the characterization and then to the rotators and then did into my PhD work, which is using rings to detect bacteria. That um, was with was, the a AFRL and yes, Air yeah, Force Research Lab in Dayton. Yeah. Did but you I mean, actually was, go there to do the the work? I did, or yeah, okay. which was crazy because it, it was kind of this. I mean, it was basically the setup was uh, spent about a year to two, maybe about a year doing the simulation work at AFRL because it's working in the government labs. They're very specific about kind of internet access and those kinds of things, so can't just like remote in. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was on site doing that and then came back here to do the fabrication um, and then back to AFRL and Dayton for the, the measurement. And so it was a lot of driving from, uh, you know, from Burke over to Dayton, Ohio, which is about a three hour trip. Okay. Uh, so I had a lot of books on tape and just kind of, you know, going back and forth. But it, yeah, it was very much you had to kind of get stuff and get there and kind of try to try to plan life around that. Uh, so that was it's really interesting. When I started, we I had to do depositions at Notre Dame, and it's exactly the same thing. You just that's when I got an Audible account, and yes, so I, I've listened to so many books, which is is wonderful, right? I mean, it, it's a it's I, a huge chunk of time, but yeah, look how well read you are now. So. Exactly, yeah. Now I've I've read way more than, than I would have. So, so so you you're going through this and surface roughness. Like there's things in in the fab that you know go from quite nice, but the more intolerant the process to something like surface roughness, the more horrible the processing project. So right. that so how did you like while you're doing your PhD, right? I'm sure that particularly with the process development problems like this, like how do you stay motivated, like on a day to day level, right? To to keep you know because it, it is tough, right? You make it. It's just, it's, and the worst is whenever it's almost right, but yes. it never is right, you know, like how, so how do you stay, you know, from just getting kind of, uh, I wouldn't say failure, but after right. kind of not the thing you want, because uh, maybe missteps is the best, I think the best word for that, yeah. or a mishap, right? Because it's right. not, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think in fab, every, every time it doesn't work is a learning experience. Right. Um, so well, you have to very... have this attitude, otherwise you will lose your mind. <laughs> you do. Yeah. No, you do. Yeah. And it's. I, I think that it, it is. Uh, I think what what it taught me was just the importance of. Uh, I think both kind of within methodology of being intentional about procedure, and then also being intentional about recording that procedure. Because right. Because we had had. I mean, especially early on, it had experiences with stuff that worked really well, but not knowing why, right? Because the next time it doesn't. And right. so I, I think kind of learn to get in the habit of every time doing anything, right? You have to have your recipe, and that has to be specific. Mm -hmm. um, but then also need you know need to I think keep in mind with that that not all of those variables matter. Um, and so right. to kind of be mindful of what you need to be sure is kept the same and to also kind of do your research about what can change and it's not a big deal right like if i yeah is with it's kind of like with photoresist right if you leave um 
AZ-1518 on a hot plate for 10 minutes instead of two minutes, you've got a very different thing. If you do that with PMMA, it doesn't do anything different. Mm. And so you really do have to, I, I think it, it saves time to look into, okay, what is this doing on a physical level? Why do I need to worry about this? Do I need right. to worry about this? Does it matter? Maybe it right. doesn't. So, Yeah, because uh, I, I found, well, personally, and I'm curious how you deal with this issue, but I found that there's actually a danger to being over careful with your recipes initially. Because the problem is that if you, let's say you're like, I wanna be conservative and bake this overnight, you know, or, or not bake it, but dehydrate it or whatever overnight, just to be sure. The problem is if it works, you know, then you don't want to experiment and then you end up, you know, cumulatively wasting tons of time. So what That's I try to do is to do the minimum, like most sloppy method and then see if that, works and then if if it's not working then modify it out but i'm just curious how you deal with this sort of over over care initially right. or do you do you start with the most rigid procedure and then lax it out or yeah i think it's i think you have at least in my mind i mean the, the way to start is always with with kind of erring on the side of caution and inspecting it at every single step because you mm -hmm. can't, I mean, like you said with your tweezers, right? In, unless you look to see is my wafer actually clean, you can't know. Um, right. But yeah, what, for me at least, it, it was kind of a thing where I, I will start with kind of, this is, you know, the standard uh, clean, right? Sonication for five minutes at each and go through. Yeah. Uh, but then when I drop something in the spinner and then I need to clean it, that's when I'll just say, well, let me just squirt it with acetone and dry it and let's see what happens. So it's right. kind of trying to, then you have kind of your samples that you know these are good, and then you've got the ones that might have been screw-ups. Let's see how we can cut corners and see what we can salvage. Because it's our, it's not, we, you know, it's not worth it to go back at that point. Right, um, right. But, so that's that's kind of how I do it, is kind of doing in these two bins and kind of learning on the fly with, well, what happens if we do this? Okay. Sometimes you only know if, if you've tried it and there's, you know, there's no way to know. So. Right, right. Yeah. So that's and that's actually you know, critical too. I think that's a really good advice is always, always inspect everything because that's the thing I learned. It's like you think you think you know how to tie your shoes, but until you look down and make sure they're tied, they're not tied. Right. Well, and that too, I think, is, is something that... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, my big thing I think with Fab is that I I absolutely hate having to redo stuff, and that's yeah. I mean, Fab is not forgiving for that. So it's 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 kind of one of those things that it it will make your life easier if you are careful because you will catch mistakes instead of waiting two months and getting to the end of this device and being like, oh crap, it doesn't work. Right. And right. so it's uh, I yeah I, I would say that being being methodical and doing that inspection is the lazy thing to do because then. You you don't have to redo stuff. Then you can right. you can kind of catch it when it happens uh, and can adjust on the fly. Exactly. Yeah, because the reason I was cleaning pieces was because I was about to do material growths, and I don't want to like have weird features and then not know if it's because my film isn't cleaned. But to to put it in perspective with the inspection, so I go to my groupmate and I say I cannot clean pieces, and he's like, let me show you what a clean piece is. We put his piece under the microscope. It's horrific yes and he's like what <laughs> I know because yes. nobody you can, you can get a phd and still not know how to clean pieces yes because nobody it, it doesn't, doesn't matter for some mind. project it doesn't right. cross your mind that that it can be dirty it looks clean 
You know, you right. look at it, it's spotless, but you put it under the microscope, it's a disaster. Right. I, I mean, mean, it is, right, it's relative, right? So, I mean, there are definitely projects where um, it, it that's fine, right? And it, it doesn't, right. it, and it would, it would be a waste of time to worry about it. But it, right, right. if you're doing something like, yeah, I'm trying to get this really continuous film without pinholes, you absolutely have to worry about that. Right, so I think right. that's where that it, I think being being intentional about kind of doing some of the background research to say, OK, well, what's really going on? What do I care about? What happens at that level uh, really pays off because you get to know it. Do I you know, maybe I I don't care about the cleanliness. Maybe I just squirt it off with IPA and it's fine. Or maybe right, I need to right. do this much more uh, advanced kind of, you know, specific care. clean that is going to be required. Right, so. right. So so I. Because we're we're unfortunately getting closer to the end, so I do want to ask you this. So in in about um, twenty sixteen, you you're still doing your PhD and you become an optoelectronics research engineer. What prompted this, and you know what's going on? Like that's unusual for a, a PhD student to become employed right at their institution, right in the middle so of their PhD. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I knew um, at least in the uh, kind of the near long term that needed to be in Indiana because um, I so my and my my wife is actually in kind of a similar position. So she's uh, she's a physician over at uh, IUR Net, but got her med school paid for by the state. Um, mm -hmm. But as a result of that, had to practice for four years within the state of Indiana. Okay. So I'm and, and basically nearing the end of my program and knowing that I need to do something within the state um, and, and know at this point that I, I'm not interested in the faculty track that, that okay. my least favorite part is the writing portion and writing grants mm -hmm. all day every day does not seem like a fun way to kind of spend, uh, spend okay. my time. And so uh, yeah, so the, the research engineer position opened up and was kind of at a point that I somewhat foolishly thought that, oh, I'll be done with my PhD by then. This was maybe February. Okay. Like, yeah, I'm so close. We'll be done by then. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so, I, I, I can say from knowing other people trying to get their PhDs, it's not over until it's deposited, the committee says everything's good, and Purdue's admin gets it done. <laughs> yes. So yeah, so that it was, it was a good fit for me, uh, family-wise. It was also, I think, got got to stay kind of on more, um, in kind of the processing problem, kind of being. That's I, I say what I, what I really like about my position is kind of get to be kind of a freelance process consultant, just okay. to kind of the user. And so I really like uh, that's what kind of drew me to it is being able to kind of look at new problems and try to kind of figure out well what what's the issue here what can you do to fix it that kind of thing um right it's always been very interesting and so the the ability to do that um was it was a big plus for me but yeah that, so it that actually brings us to a, a question from the audience they say what's the best way to reach out to staff for guidance when we get stuck with problems in fab so yeah and that's it's you know, it, it's kind of one of those things because it, it depends, I think, on the level of the issue. Um, if, if it's a simple question like spin speed or something, email's the best way if you know who to ask, but email's very siloed. Um, yeah. And so pre-COVID, that's when we were doing, uh, I would say, the in-person fab forums. And so the idea there was to kind of do a, uh, you know, a way to do discussion basically to get snacks for one, right? But then to also kind of do a discussion with the staff on your issues and hear what other students are asking about. 
Right. Um, so you can kind of ask your question, but then can also learn from what other people are struggling with, maybe talk to them about what they're doing. So a year ago, I would have said that. Right now, we're kind of struggling on that because email's fine, but it's very siloed, right? So yeah. um, we're trying to use the NSAC help channel on Teams right. um, to kind of do that because what, what that allows us to do is that it can be something that's either going to be answered by a specific staff member or mm -hmm. by many staff members or by other users who might see that. So okay. we're kind of we're trying, you know, that, that's one avenue. Um, you can also, uh, you know, we have kind of a, a comments page on the wiki, but that's hasn't hasn't taken off as much. So I, I would say right now email is good, but uh, we're trying to push towards the help channel on uh, Teams for NSAC. Um, and we'll also be, uh, we'll say, Sam, I don't know if I'd mentioned this to you, but we're going to be in the new BNC 151 are going to have everybody join the Teams channel or sorry, join the NSAC Teams team. So that right. everybody can kind of be on board and use that. That would be great because yeah. it's it's tough to get everyone like moving in the same. Yes, because right? you can't. Right, and that's the thing with right now is you can't just kind of come and visit us in the office. Right, um, and I, Which, I can't have a thirty-minute conversation over email. That's just not. It's not. It's not doable. But it's sometimes right. we can do a quick Teams chat for five minutes, cover right. it, or maybe we do an instant messenger. We don't even have to see each other. So those those are kind okay. of the, the best ways right now. Okay, but uh, but when Burke is open, you highly recommend people just come over to the office uh, after everybody's vaccinated. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you um, know, assuming that COVID is long gone. term. Yeah, long term that would be. Yeah, long term, I would say the best thing to do is hopefully we get these in-person fab forums back going. Okay. But in the meantime, definitely leverage Teams and email if you have to. Okay. Uh, so that's that's what I would say there. So so. Just to kind of wrap up on your your story, what I'm curious about is so basically what I'm understanding is for your PhD, you sort of basically finished your PhD and you were kind of in the last stages of I'm assuming writing a couple last papers and maybe doing a, a few last experiments. And then you became a research engineer and then I'm assuming it's just sort of like chipping away at the wall slowly. Like, how did you manage being a research engineer and a PhD student at the same time? Uh, poorly. Um, it's <laughs> I don't recommend it. It's uh, so I mean, basically what happened is I had. I finished my experimental portion a week before I started full time. And so I had in my mind that, OK, well, I just need to, you know, do some data processing, figure this stuff out and then just write my thesis. No big deal. Right. Um, and that, if I had not been working, probably would have taken about six months, which I right. didn't realize at the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so instead that got drug out over about three years. So that's, I mean, basically what happened is that it's, you know, with a lot of research, you really have to, um, you know, once the ball's moving, you have this kind of momentum on a project of knowing where you're at and keeping that going. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's kind of why it, it, it took so long on that end is because in trying to do you know specific MATLAB code to kind of data mine for what I was looking for, just, I mean, it took, takes ages. And so in my head, I was like, okay, well, I'll just do that for an hour or two in the evenings, and that didn't really work that well. So yeah, right. so instead, kind of had to look at kind of taking some specific breaks, get this chunk done, get this chunk done, um, and then do the writing. Okay. So it's I, I definitely don't recommend doing that, but it, it was at a, at a point for me where uh, I mean, it was at the end of my program, and so I wanted to capitalize on the opportunity. 
Um, and this was also, yeah, when my son was close to being born and so didn't want to have to kind of raise a child on a grad salary. Um, yeah, not, not ideal. So, yeah, so it, it was, uh, yes. So, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend that. Uh, but yeah, I, my recommendation would be get finished at least to the point to where you know you're going to deposit uh, and then look for a job. But it's it's not always things don't always work that way. So right, it seems like uh, you know actually you, you've you've beaten the odds because I know a lot of people that kind of are uh, kind of ABD. It's very hard actually to for the it's it's tough right because like family starts to become a much more time dominant not just time but mentally dominating kind of yes. thing where yeah two hours in the evening mentally good luck <laughs> you know correct uh what's like just more kind of specific is there any strategy you found that actually worked because you said you did it in chunks how did you carve out the time how did you get kind of the mental space to do it was there any tactic you used i know some people might wake up like at five in the morning before everyone else just to get in like an hour of like you know, calm thinking, but was there anything that you found was effective? Uh, nothing that w I would say, I mean, for me, I, to kind of get into that kind of writing space and do that, I kind of needed extended, I would say, focus. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, ended up kind of just holding myself up for the weekend. Okay. Um, yeah, I just I it got to the point where I realized like I just can't do um, now you know, any work stuff or family stuff. Yeah, it's just I I just have to be here okay. for two days, and it's going to take some time to get into a productive space, but then to kind of maximize the amount of time once I'm in there. I see. Um, so that so, so it's sort of like of you negotiate. I'm assuming what happened basically is that your your son got to a certain age where you know he can be su supervised. Uh, and I'm assuming you negotiated with your wife to be like, I need two solid days to just work on this. Yeah, my uh, my wife and family are very supportive and patient, and I love them for it, especially my wife. Yes, but that's I mean, that's that's kind of what it came down to is I, I can't be here this weekend. I have to do this. Okay. Uh, and a lot more of those weekends than I originally anticipated because it's – because I mean, that's the thing with research is you don't you don't know how long it's going to take, right? It's it's yeah. task based. It's not like it's just oh, I'll just work an eight hour thing and that'll be it. It's uh, yeah, it, yeah, it that takes it's, as long as it takes. That's so. I think that's the thing about research that's very, very tricky is that people want results with a time frame, but it's like if it's really research, right? You know that that thing that you thought would take two months, it's actually a six year project. Yes, that turns involves out involves yes. the, the bloodshed of a couple of grad students. <laughs> Correct. So. No, it's and there, there really is no way, you know, you, you can really, I think with deadlines, right, you can say, okay, here's our, our deadline. We're going to give what we've got. And then you can say, okay, we need to get this working, but you can't do both. Yeah. And so it's it's really a question of how, how much is enough, how, you know, when, when do you draw the line, those kinds of things. Um, okay. But yeah, that's, it's very true. So, and then I guess to kind of wrap up, because we're actually over time a bit, uh, what do you see uh, as the big challenges for Burke kind of in the next three to five years as an organization? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it, it will be, it's, it's still, I think there's a lot of uncertainty with COVID. Um, mm -hmm. 
especially because I mean, with the you know the shared use lab model really requires um, people, right? Right, and so it's it's tricky because you know especially this year our usage is way down necessarily, right? Because we're de-densified, everybody has to be you know as much as possible working from home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the the big challenges over the very near term is seeing you know I mean at least how it looks now, right? Hopefully there's going to be this wonderful vaccine that comes out and everybody can get in the next six months and that everything goes back to normal. Right. Um, but there's there's a good amount of uncertainty there. Uh, I think I think beyond that, it, it's kind of a, a question of bigger picture, I think, with research in kind of the U.S. Um, and uh, in universities, just because it's, it's something that we have, um, you know, I think there's a lot of political will um, towards uh, kind of lowering taxes, which means spending less money on things. And this, right. so I think what that, in large part, what that means is that a lot of what used to be government funded, I think will become increasingly private funded. And we kind of already mm-hmm. see this with um, a lot of like the Microsoft Q station project um, right. back decades ago, would have either been in kind of a, a Bell Lab style thing where they're doing this in-house or it would, you know, something in the company. And so what what we're going to see, I think, is more interest from uh, both companies, both big and small, and kind of leveraging the university mm-hmm. infrastructure, um, right. which is a very good thing. Um, but it is definitely a change from most of that money coming maybe from the NSF. Um, okay. So I think that's that's kind of a difference and kind of a question of can we... You know, right now, I think Burke is very focused on our you know, our internal users, but I, I think there is a yeah. question of is is there a way that we could make ourselves, knowing that we're in the middle of a cornfield and in the middle of Indiana, uh, more attractive mm-hmm. to either a big company or a small company to come and leverage our tool set. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I think I, I think both of those, right, as well as hopefully not. Um, you know, I th- I think bigger picture politically, I think that. Uh, I think there's a, a real uncertainty about what the grad student population is going to look like. I mean, we've kind of had all of this wonderful talent come in internationally to the U.S. for decades, and does that right. still stay, you know, 2020 and beyond? Right. So, or h- how does that work? So, I, th- I think those are kind of both the bigger things, and then the more specific, Burke-wise, is kind of how do we adapt to those? Right. Okay. Yeah, that's it's a lot to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> it, no, it, it is, and it's 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 one of those that you know you can if if you it's good to plan for the future, but in twenty you know in no right, nobody could have planned twenty nineteen yeah. nobody would have thought this year would have been this, and so you can only you know I mean the best laid plans of mice and men, right? So it's kind of looking at what the future looks like from here, but you have to course correct as it goes. So. I, I do look forward to being like, so your PhD, why did it take longer? Well, you know, there was a global pandemic that I totally planned for. <laughs> exactly. No, well. yeah, don't. I, I don't think you can underplay that card uh, in five <laughs> or 10 years, especially to your children or something like that. Yeah. Oh, so. yeah. No, definitely. They're going to suffer from hearing about I'm like, yeah, we had to sit inside all day. Every day, um, but uh, so any any kind of final advice that you'd have for uh, Burke researchers, kind of just general, anything you you would like, like I guess there's a nice question that says if you had a billboard to give some life advice to everyone, uh, like kind of what would you what would you suggest? 
I, yeah, I would. I think the biggest thing is, and again, this is hard with COVID, right? But is just talk to people. Um, is that you have, you know, we have this incredibly talented, experienced, diverse group of researchers here, um, and everybody is working on their own problem. But there's a lot of overlap between those, right? Um, and it's especially if if you're working on something as a as a new, you know, a new student. Um, there may be a lot of experience in your group, but yeah. your older students don't know everything. They only know the things that they've done. Uh, right. And so most of understanding, whether it's in fab or simulation or those things come from having done things. And so right. the biggest shortcut you can do is to kind of, uh, I think, kind of, you know, casually talk to people and, you know, ask like, well, what, what are you working on right now? Or what are you stuck on? Right. What, what right. sort of things are you dealing with? Uh, because then, you know, people are usually very happy to vent about whatever, you know, this thing in the fabric, right? You're like talking about your metal tweezers, right? That's that's the kind of thing that no one knows to ask that, but that if you're in that moment struggling with it, people right. are very happy to talk about it. And so I, I think mm -hmm. that's where you can really get a leg up um, in your research is by noticing people who are doing similar things, not necessarily yeah. exactly the same, and figuring out what problems they see. Okay. Uh, because those are probably problems that either you are seeing or that you should be worried about or that you may see later on. So that's yeah. that would be yeah, that would be the big one, I think, is just talk to people. Okay. That is fantastic advice. And uh, I think we have to wrap it up now. But Justin, thank you so much for kind of giving all this like wisdom that you've collected over the years uh, to to everyone. It's been a wonderful time talking to you and I uh, I thank you again not just for this interview but for everything that you've done at Burke. I think there's been like a quantum leap in in the sort of social fabric um, of Burke actually since since you've started to work at Burke and I want to mm. thank you on Burke community part and also for NSAC and for myself actually because you've helped me so much over the years with so many things. Oh, good. No, that's that means a lot to me to hear that. I mean, that's I uh, yeah, I, I think it's very uh, yeah, it's, it's very good, I think, to hear where uh, what things make a difference and where that makes a difference for that. So thank you for saying that. And thank you very much for having me uh, having me here. I'm very, very happy to talk to you.